0: Welcome to Fine Rambles, number 84. So I want to start with the punchline this week. And the punchline is that fentanyl is now killing 40,000 Americans every year. And I find that just a staggering number. And I wanted to understand better the evolution of this problem. And so I read this book called Dreamland by, by a guy named Sam Quinones. I probably mispronounced that. And and he he lays it out pretty well. He explains that the precursor to fentanyl was black tar heroin. And the gateway drug for black tar heroin was oxytocin. And oxytocin was marketed legally by a company named Purdue Pharmaceutical, under the brand name, you've probably heard it before, OxyContin. And Purdue Pharma was run, it was founded, it was founded and run by a man named Arthur Sackler. And Arthur Sackler really revolutionized marketing drugs. Before him, it was kind of a boring conservative industry, and he was the one who created a lot of the techniques that the entire industry uses today. So let's see, for example, having drug reps basically be high-pressure pushers who knock on doctors' doors and essentially bribed them. They bribed the doctors with steak dinners and free trips and lots of free samples of the addictive drugs they were peddling. The bribery was more straightforward as well. Purdue would give kickbacks to the the doctors who prescribed the most Oxycontin. And here's how successful that business model was, starting with Purdue, and then spreading to the rest of the industry, the number of pharmaceutical representatives, employees of the drug companies hired solely to kick in doctors' doors and convince them to peddle their products, their drugs to the the patients, that number increased. It went up by 75,000 people. From 1995 to 2005. So, with this army and a lot of bribes, Sackler got control of the doctors. But having the doctors wasn't enough. He needed cover. He needed sort of political and medical cover for the doctors to start sort of indiscriminately prescribing opium because that's what they were doing. I mean, Oxycontin is an opioid. It is based on a drug that is known to be wildly, wildly addictive. And so here's what he did. He found one study. (laughs) And this study was from way back in the day. And it was, I think it was one sentence long. It was a one sentence study that had been in some random journal that looked at a few people who took low doses of opioids for routine surgery and didn't get addicted. And then based on that, the Sacklers claimed that opioids were not addictive, period, period, despite everyone knowing that opium and morphine were wildly addictive. And then they had sort of their cover and they had the doctor's. And then they started covering their other bases. They started bribing the scientists, the researchers. And they did this by sponsoring their own studies and paying doctors, even hiring them full time, so long as the studies said what they wanted. And they started paying doctors to give speeches, very public speeches to doctors at conventions, telling them how harmless opioids were. And the phrase he uses, which is great, is that only bulls got bullhorns. Only the people who were yay, rah, rah to opioids were given the means to amplify their message. And Purdue Pharma even bribed the FDA. (laughs) They even bribed the agency in charge of drugs in this country. And the FDA examiner that approved OxyContin went to work for Purdue. And, you know, give the devil his due. Everyone wanted to believe that this wasn't a problem. Everyone wanted to believe that opioids were harmless. And maybe that's because the Sacklers and the other drug companies were pressuring them. And maybe it's because, well, God, you know, they were in a position to make more money than you can imagine. If you just squinted and tilted your head a bit and declared that opioids weren't addictive. And, you know, put yourself in this position. Maybe you're a doctor who happens to be an alcoholic. And maybe you've been sued for malpractice before. And you're desperate. Maybe you're just an ordinary doctor with $250,000 of debt and and 70% of your time is spent on on paperwork for insurance companies and and maybe the hospital that owns you that owns you only lets you see each patient for 6 minutes and and you're tired and the patient is crying for help and here's this river of free money just waiting to be seized i mean every patient that you get they have to come back to you every month for a new prescription And every visit is another $250. So if you get one patient hooked on opioids, that's a cash annuity. That person represents $3,000 a year. And you can even tell yourself you're helping people. You're alleviating pain. You're the good guy. So the result was that Purdue and the other drug companies controlled every single part of the industry. They controlled the FDA. They controlled the studies that were published in the medical journals. They controlled the conventions where the doctors they could also controlled spread the lie that opium wasn't addictive. They controlled lawyers that, that they paid to sue any hospital or any doctor that wasn't handing out opioids like candy. And again, finally, they controlled the doctors. They controlled the suppliers, and they bribed them into becoming drug dealers. And it worked. This, this method worked. From 1997 to 2002, the number of prescriptions for opioids for chronic pain, again, chronic pain, that means not for acute pain, not for surgery-related pain, not for pain related to cancer or, or related to hospice care just chronic pain just someone coming in and saying you know i'm in pain doc on a regular basis those prescriptions went up 1000% that's 10 times until there were 6.2 million prescriptions being written every year 6 million prescriptions every year so that's that's what 30 pills let's say per prescription that's 200 million pills a year Of just opium of opium being prescribed for chronic pain and this was such a profitable model that the doctors who did the most prescribing who were running what's called you know pill mills these pill mills just metastasized across the country as doctors staked out their claim to new markets and for example broward county in florida this is one example, Broward County in Florida in 2007 had 4 pain clinics, 4. In 2009, that's 2 years later, they had 115. So this is the supply side. And you know, it's it's weird to think about this because if you had told me that these middle-class suburban communities were going to want 10 times the number of opioid drug prescriptions, I'm not sure I would have believed you. Because why would middle-class suburban communities be such a ripe field to find new drug addicts? Well, the answer is that these communities, these middle-class suburban communities, were already falling apart. They were falling apart even before the scourge of opioids hit. And, And the reasons are the reasons that are starting to become part of the national conversation. You know, jobs were destroyed because they were offshore to China. The family was destroyed and replaced with single-parent households, which simply do not function as well as two-parent households. You had, you had the result of the endless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You had you know hundreds of thousands of wounded soldiers coming home with pain problems. And and the result for the kids was that you had children in these communities without purpose, without family, without community, and they were basically dealing with ennui, dealing with apathy. They had a sort of prosperity, but it was an empty prosperity, a debt-driven prosperity where where they weren't allowed even to get part-time jobs, and all they had was comfort and cheap crap. And then when that kid got injured playing football or in a car crash or, I don't know, from a ski accident, and the doctor pushed the pain pills, there was very little to keep the kid from becoming addicted. So, and I think this is a really important point. We talked today about deaths of despair, but before we had deaths of despair, we had the demand of despair. Despair created the demand for a lot of these opioids. And if they didn't create the demand, they helped, they helped nurture the addiction because people with meaning and purpose in their lives don't get addicted at the same rates as people have been in this country for the last 10 to 20 years. And one question I had was, how did everyone afford all of this pain medication? And the answer, you know, again, is just really disheartening because the insurance companies were happy to pay. <laughs> they were happy to pay because their profit is a markup of total healthcare cost. That's right. Insurance companies are incentivized to inflate healthcare costs. And if you want to know why your healthcare insurance costs so much, well, that's one reason. It's not the only reason, but it's a big one insurers want healthcare costs to increase. It's not just the insurance companies. The government was really happy to pay as well. And so anyone who couldn't afford the pills based on not having a job or not having enough money, well, they would sign up for a government check. They would sign up for SSDI or SSI or, or workers' comp. And then they used these government checks to buy opioids. And then then those addicts started dealing themselves. The pills that the government paid for, the addicts started to sell. And it makes total sense. Why wouldn't they? For a $3 Medicaid copay, you could get $10,000 worth of pills street value. $3 for $10,000. Who could resist that? Now, here's where the story shifts to the black tar heroin. Because when the medical community realized what they had done, when they started to understand that they had addicted millions of people to opioids, to oxytocin, did they focus on, you know, gradually weaning those addicts off the drug? Did they establish treatment centers like they have in Europe? where addicts could get drugs safely and learn in a controlled environment to reduce their addiction? No, of course not. Of course not. They just stopped the prescriptions cold. The the gate just went down. And so now you had millions of people in the suburbs with money and an itch they couldn't scratch. That's a vacuum. And vacuums get filled. And this vacuum got filled with black tar heroin. He talks about how the black tar heroin was manufactured. So you had campesinos growing poppies in the mountains, and they would sell the goo to cookers. And so in less than a week, you went from the poppy plant to a kilo of black tar heroin crossing the border in a boombox. And that one kilo would turn into 10,000 balloons of black tar heroin and a street value of 150,000 dollars. One kilo, 150,000 dollars. That kind of opportunity for profit created, created all the supply you would ever want. And, and he talks about some of the people who came north to sell the drug. talks about how the opportunity that was available to them as a drug dealer versus being a farmer in Mexico. And so these kids would come up, deal the drug, and they would make enough money to go back home to Zalisco, and they'd have new boots, and they'd have, you know, Levi 501 jeans, and they'd throw money around. And those drug dealers would achieve a status that the farmers who stayed behind could never dream of. And then seeing that status would make the next wave of young men go north. It was a model based on franchises. Think of Domino's Delivering or, or, you know, like Uber Eats. These were grassroots dealers. They were decentralized. So the way he describes it is you'd have a very flat corporate structure. You'd have a regional manager and then a telephone operator who would receive all the orders from the addicts in town. And then that operator would route the drivers to deliver to the addict in a parking lot. And the drivers lasted, you know, a year maybe before they rotated back to Zalisco with some money or to a different town. And the cops really didn't bother to crack down because, well, the quantities of heroin were so small. And the dealers were smart. They didn't carry guns. They never acted violently. They didn't flash their wealth. They didn't spend their money because the people they wanted to impress were all back in Zalisco, Mexico. And so if they got arrested, all that really happened to them was that they were just sent back home. And then, well, they could cross the border again and try again if they wanted to. And the math here, again, is just stunning. One balloon of black tar heroin would consist of 0.1 grams of the actual heroin. And, you know, addicts are broke, so they can't buy a lot. But it's an addiction. So they're very good repeat customers. They're like Starbucks customers. They buy every day and they're buying steady, small volumes. And so the math he outlines is each driver would sell 100 balloons a day, each one for $15. And each franchise, you know, each Domino's franchise would have 10 drivers. And that means $15,000 a day of revenue, which means a small American town who is generating $5 million a year of demand. And let me be very clear. The Sacklers have their names on buildings at Princeton and at Harvard and at the Metropolitan Museum of New York. And this family and the industry they influenced have created a nationwide heroin epidemic that is killing 40,000 people a year. It's worse than that, even, because addicts destroy communities. Addicts don't work. Whatever they own, they sell. If they don't own anything, they steal. They strip buildings of their metal, of their copper. They shoplift. They rob. Their kids, I mean, their kids are just fucked. And their community, whatever city they live in, it rots from the inside. And without opportunity, well, that creates the next generation of addicts. Reading about this really reminded me of the financial crisis. Because just like in the financial crisis, everyone here is guilty. Everyone lied. The doctors lied. The scientists who sold out to Purdue lied. The drug companies lied. Purdue, Pfizer, Baxter, all of them. The pharmaceutical reps lied. The people who scammed the system and then resold the drugs lied. Coaches of these kids who were injured looked the other way. And devastatingly, parents, parents stayed silent, even when their children died because they were so ashamed. And at every stage, it's very understandable why, right? It's easy to understand why everyone in the system would act the way they did. They were self-interested. They saw that everyone else was doing it. They, They used the justification that they were helping people deal with pain. And maybe, and maybe no one's to blame, but 40,000 people a year are still dying. And this, this book really drove home another point for me, that in a drug war, you cannot stop supply. If you have people willing to pay money for drugs, the drugs will find a way to get there. You have to deal with it at the demand level. You have to deal with it at the demand level. We are unbelievably vulnerable when we're at the doctor because something's wrong with us. And, you know, we don't know what that something is exactly. So we're afraid and we're uncertain. And, you know, we're often in pain as well. You know, we're really at rock bottom. We're doubting our decisions. We're questioning our choices because, my God, we must have messed up or else we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be at the hospital. So something went wrong and we're not sure what it was. And it's probably our fault and we're in pain. And then the doctor wafts over, you know, and he's the savior. He's the authority figure. He's got the white coat and he's got the paternal heir and he's the whole reason you're there. Help me, doc. Save me. Save me. Tell me what's wrong, so at least I know, so at least I understand. Because the not knowing makes the fear and the anxiety and the pain twice as bad. And then the doctor recommends invasive surgery. Or he recommends heavy-duty drugs that you will have to take for the rest of your life. Or he promises to take your pain away, and he hands you Oxycontin. And in that vulnerable, anxious state, when we are most susceptible to just doing what we're told without, without any critical thinking or, or asking questions, and then we wake up and we're addicted to opioids. That's all I've got. I'll catch you next week.